Hey guys, and welcome to Unnecessary Roughness, a true crime sports podcast. This is a podcast where I cover true crime events within sports, whether it's an athlete who's committed crimes or a crime that actually happened during a sporting event, I've got you covered. I got a huge lineup planned within the next couple of months, and I'm hoping to have at least one episode out a month, if not two. Stay tuned, guys, because I got a lot coming your way, and let's get to the episode. Alright guys, so for my first episode, I'm going to be covering the survival story of Monica Sellis, and I really wanted to make it a big point to say that I am referring to her as a survivor because to me, that's what she is. I really don't like to use the word victim because it kind of makes it sound like uh, Gunter, the person who attacked her, had won in this situation, and she's very much a survivor. She overcame this, and she truly was the winner in all of this. Uh, So, you know, I think it's really important for her story to be told that way and I want to do her justice. And, you know, sometimes when something really terrible happens to someone, we tend to focus on like that point in time in particular and maybe not the person's earlier life or things that happened after how they kind of overcame that moment. So, I really want to do her justice. I'm going to deep dive into her life. Uh, So, without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, so Monica Sells was born December 2nd, 1973 in Yugoslavia. She began playing tennis at age five and was actually coached by her father, which isn't completely uncommon. So Serena Williams, the Williams sisters actually were both coached by their father. Uh, And a little known fact about Monica is that she actually had a two-handed forehand and backhand. So this is actually really uncommon in the sport of tennis. So commonly, you'll see a one-handed forehand and a double-handed backhand. Uh, Some people have a one-handed forehand and a one-handed backhand, but it's very uncommon to have double-handed forehand and backhand. So it's pretty phenomenal that she was able to make it so far in tennis with a very different technique than a lot of other people. So there's actually a quote from a book written by Monica Seles describing how her father would kind of stick up for her because people would often say, like, she's playing wrong because she had a two-handed forehand. So when people would argue and say, you need to teach her the right way, he would say, you know, that's how she picked up the racket and that's what feels natural for her. So for Monica, this is the way she's supposed to play. So it was very well known that she had a very unorthodox way of hitting and a lot of the information that I got for this podcast actually comes from the book where I got that quote uh, written by Monica. The book is called Getting a Grip. I'll go into greater detail about the end but I don't want to give too much information away that she wrote in that book because I don't want to take away from the work that she put into that book. She goes into great detail about the things that she deals with and she's really honest with herself and I really recommend that anyone read this book. Even if you're not into tennis, it's still very good. There's a lot of great life lessons in there. But by the time Monica was 10, she was quickly becoming known within the tennis community and she was even named Sportswoman of the Year in Yugoslavia in 1984. 
She was even becoming very self-aware of how people would start to see her. So she would often talk about how as a young child, she had a very tiny frame. And so people were always commenting on her figure. And that's just something that she started to kind of notice. It was no longer her just playing tennis with her brother and her father. You know, she was playing at a pretty competitive level at this point, And a lot of people in her life knew that she was a very talented player. So at this point, she's playing in junior tournaments and was quickly rising within the ranks of junior girls tennis. So during this year, remember, she's only 10 years old. She was in the top 16. And then the following year, she was the singles 12 and under number one in the world. So when Monica is just 12 years old, she wins the Orange Bowl tournament in Florida. And this is where she was introduced to Mr. Nick Bulateri. Now, if you don't know who Nick Bulateri is, he is extremely legendary tennis coach and very well known in the tennis community. I myself had the pleasure of meeting him my freshman year of college, and he has helped grow the tennis community for years and years, and he has an extremely huge following. Uh, He's coached players like Maria Sharapova, Andre Agassi, and many, many others who've went on to have phenomenal tennis careers and be amazing players. He actually had the world's first tennis boarding academy, and this academy is a school where you go to basically play tennis. It's really for people who are going to be very high up in the tennis ranks and want to play professionally in the future. So when he saw Monica at the Orange Bowl, he knew that she was a very talented player and he had to offer her a scholarship. So he goes up to Monica, he offers her a scholarship to go to the academy, but The thought of being away from home was a lot for Monica. Now, you have to remember that at this point, she was only 12 years old and she was from Europe. So the thought of moving all the way across the globe to Florida seemed a bit too much for her at the time, which if I had to think about it myself, is completely understandable. So uh, her and her father decided to compromise with Bulletary and they told him they would come for a couple weeks. So her and her dad went to spend some time at the academy. She was there for two weeks and she had an amazing time. So she went home after being at the academy, didn't really think much about it. Uh, She played a lot of soccer, um, which was really big in her community. And of course, you know, if you know, being from Europe, soccer is very big there. So what she explains that you kind of did when you lived in Europe is you got together every day and you played with the kids in your town and you played soccer and that's just kind of what you did. So it was around this time that it became very evident to Monica that she had to make a decision. You know, what was she going to focus on? Was it going to be tennis or was she just going to kind of let tennis fade into the background and just be a hobby? Now, I know people who are in college or maybe even grad school who don't even know what they want to do with their lives. Monica was only 12 years at this point when she made this decision and her her parents kind of left it up to her. I mean, that's kind of the way she describes it is that they didn't really try to push her. You know, again, in order for her to make her dream become a reality, she would have to move all the way to Florida and that's a huge step for someone that young to try to make. So this was a really, really big decision that would kind of change the trajectory of Monica's life. So ultimately, Monica decided to go train at the academy with Nick Bulateri, but her brother, Zoltan, 
actually ended up going with her. So that kind of helped to ease some anxiety. So the thing about the academy is that it's really intense because you're solely there for tennis, but it's still a school. So I actually trained there for a day when I was in a uh, freshman in college and it was no joke. I mean, those coaches were intense and it's also very, very expensive. So to be able to get a full scholarship to go there, I mean, that usually means that you're going places. I mean, Nick didn't just hand those out willy-nilly, you know, so there was a pretty big disconnect on those who were on scholarship and those were who were paying full tuition. So a lot of the times the families that were paying for tuition came from well-to-do families. Maybe the kids were really good at tennis, but they may not have been as great, but they could still afford to go. So their parents would put a lot of money into it so that they could kind of pursue their tennis goals. And, you know, on the other hand, most of the kids that were in scholarship came from medium to low income families. And so on the other hand, most of the kids that were on scholarship came from medium to low income families. And they were usually people who were working within the junior ranks and then they ended up getting noticed and they would be offered a scholarship. So again, there was this really big gap between some of the students and also their skill levels. So there were students coming from all over the world. It really became a melting pot for tennis. But daily life was pretty intense. So a typical day, the Bull Terry way, as Monica would say, was a wake up call at 6 a.m., you eat breakfast, you have an hour special practice focusing on your techniques, you'd have a three-hour hitting session afterwards, afterwards. then you would break from 11 a.m. to noon for lunch, then you would go to school for four hours, and then you'd go back for another hitting session from 4 to 7 p.m., eat dinner at 8, and then you'd have an hour and a half to do homework, and lights out would be at 10. So, there was also some rules at this academy. So, they were not allowed to watch television during the week. They weren't allowed to have any phone calls during the week. And they were not allowed to arrive late to practice. And the last rule was they weren't allowed to whine. So, you know, obviously, that's pretty intense for anyone, let alone a 13-year-old who's moving there from Europe, um, who's maybe been training three to four hours a day, who's now training close to seven hours a day. So also while at the academy, Monica's trademark that she had been practicing for eight years was then taken away from her. So the coaches that were at the academy thought that she needed to have a one-handed forehand to be successful and that she would never get anywhere very far in the women's ranking with the two-handed forehand. So it's because of this that she really began to struggle with her own identity as a tennis player and her performance started to decrease. She wasn't playing as well as she was before. She began having a lot of doubts about if she could really be a top player and if really she belonged there at all. Could she be any better than she was at that moment? And again, she was really just a very young teenager and ultimately she began falling out of love with the sport and at this point she did a thing that a lot of young girls do to cope with stress and she turned to food so she would often find herself eating a lot of peanut butter sandwiches and just kind of comfort foods that made her feel better and kind of helped her fill the void as a result of that she gained about 10 pounds 
and after about nine months at being at the academy, she overheard a group of girls talking about her, which kids are horrible, and decided that she wanted to leave at that point. And I think it was just a combination of things, you know, the homesickness, noticing changes in her body, her comfort zone, tennis playing style was taken away from her. She couldn't do what she wanted to do every day. All those things coupled together were just making it really hard for her to stay there. So she called her parents and told them that she wanted to leave. And as a result, her parents decided that they were going to move to Florida to be closer to Monica and Zoltan. You know, they didn't want her to give up on her dreams. So they thought moving to Florida, they would have their family again and be able to support her and her brother's dream to play tennis. So she was still attending the academy, but was now living at home with her family once her family moved. And it wasn't her family's intention to stay there forever in Florida. They really just kind of moved there to support Monica and her brother while they were at the academy. So it wasn't like they like up and moved, like uprooted their lives for her to play tennis. Although a lot of families will do that. They chose to do this because they saw that she was struggling and they know that she had potential and loved to play tennis. One thing that changed though is her father talked to Nick Bulletary and basically said, you know, you got to bring the double-handed forehand back. So they ended up bringing this back and she was also given two days off a week so that she wasn't getting burned out and this definitely started helping her. Uh, her dad began coaching her once again with Nick Bulletary and, you know, she said that tennis really became another fun experience for her. Again, for a lot of people in the tennis community, you know, having a family member as their full-time coach is not completely uncommon because tennis coaches are extremely expensive. Now, there's some pros and cons to you know, having a family member as your coach, but I mean, look at the Williams sisters. Richard Williams was their coach and, you know, they had help from other tennis coaches, but they really went on to have very, very successful careers and they still are having successful careers. So another thing, just this is just kind of a sidebar, is that Monica's father was actually a cartoonist. So he tried really hard to make tennis super fun for Monica. He used to write like little cartoons, you know. So, at age 14, Monica played in her very first professional tournament as an amateur in 1988. Following year, she turned professional on February 13, 1989 and joined the professional tour full-time. And at this time, she won her first career title in Houston in May of 1989 where she beat Chris Ever in the final. And a month later, she reached the semifinals of her first Grand Slam singles tournament at the French Open when she lost to the world number one at the time, Steffi Graf. Remember that name because it's going to come back later. So in this year, she finished her first year in the tour ranked as the world number six, which is so impressive. And remember, she's like 15, 16 around this time. So that's just that's bonkers. So now I'm going to get more into depth into the few years leading up to Monica's attack and just kind of describe the reasons behind this attack so you can kind of get a better understanding of, you know, where she was at as far as her career and things going on 
within that time frame. So, by the age of 16, Monica had won her first Grand Slam, winning the French Open in 1990 and defeating the world number one Steffi Graf in the finals. This time, she was actually the youngest ever French Open singles champion at the age of 16 years and six months. In 1991, she began to dominate the women's tour. She won the Australian Open and then in March of 1991, she replaced Steffi Graf as the world number one. She also defended her title at the French Open. That year, she unfortunately was not able to play in Wimbledon, but she came back for the U.S. Open, and she won that as well, giving her her third Grand Slam of the year. In 1992, she defended her Australian Open and French Open and U.S. Open title, and she also reached her first ever final at Wimbledon because she wasn't able to play the year before. But this time, she lost to Steffi Graf in the finals. So during this tournament, she got some complaints from her opponent, specifically Martina Navratilova. I may have pronounced that wrong, and I'm so sorry if I did. Please, someone correct me. Um, so Martina complained to the chair umpire that she was grunting too loudly. So a little sidebar here, grunting in tennis is a very real thing. It's for some people, it's just a general reaction to because you're exerting your body so much, especially when you get into that, you know, fifth set for men or third set for women, you, you get exhausted, the grunt's going to come out. But for some people like Maria Sharapova is one that comes to mind or Monica Seles, the grunt can also be a an intimidation factor. So, we're talking early 90s. This was not so much unheard of, but it was more common in men's tennis than women's tennis, and people began began to get really annoyed with Monica and her grunting, but I like it. I think it's part of the game to each their own, but I think it's funny that she was getting complaints. Okay, so, you know, at this time, there were plenty of players grunted and you know, still some argument remains to whether or not it's necessary for some people, you know, are they, some people are really against it, some people just think it's part of the game, but, you know, again, at this time, a lot of people began to get frustrated with Monica's so-called loud grunting. So, at the end of the year of 1993, Monica was still ranked the world number one. So, just to recap, because I know that was a lot of dates and a lot of tournaments, by the year 1993, she had won the Australian Open twice, the French Open three times, the US Open twice, and had reached the finals of Wimbledon. Um, she also had some other finals appearances in 1990. So, heading into the year 1993, now this is the year of the attack. Now, Monica was the top women's player, having won the French Open for three years in a row, and the US Open, and yada yada yada. Um, so, in January of this year, she defeated Steffi Graf in the finals of the Australian Open, which at this time, this was her third one in a row for Grand Slams against Steffi Graf. So, at this point, they had a little bit of a rivalry. I mean, it was nothing crazy, but, you know, they were they were the top players competing for the top spot. You know, I wasn't alive during this time, but I have watched videos of them playing each other and you know, it was electric to watch them play, and they were just amazing tennis players, and you can find them on YouTube, like, go watch them play Steffi Graf and Monica Seles, because it's some really good tennis. So, during this year, Monica won the Virginia Slims of Chicago, and this was the last title that she would play before her life would change forever. So, I just want to give a trigger warning for assault and whatnot. Like, I'm not going to go into, like, great detail of everything that happened, but... 
if that's something you don't want to listen to, you can skip over. So, on April 30th of 1993, Monica Seles was in a quarterfinal match with Magdalena Maliva in Hamburg, Germany. At the time, Monica was leading the match 6-4-4-3, so she was just two games away from victory, and to put things in perspective for those of you who don't play tennis, she was eight points away from winning, so she only needs to win eight points to win. That's like maybe three minutes of tennis, five minutes of tennis, depending on the game. So in tennis, you switch sides at every odd game. So you're allowed to switch sides, get a water break for a couple minutes. So Magda and Monica and Magdalena were switching sides, both sitting on their benches like they do for every match they've been playing throughout their careers. So Monica was bent over getting a sip of water and it was at this time that Gunter Parchi ran from the middle of the crowd to the edge of the court and stabbed Monica with a boning knife between her shoulder blades. The doctors had actually told Monica that if she was not bent over grabbing her water, she may have actually been paralyzed. So she quickly turned to see Parchi staring at her, and as that happened, he actually began to lunge at her, but two people attacked, so she actually fell into the arms of a stranger who had ran onto the court to help her. Uh, So quickly after, her brother and an athletic trainer within the tour were at her side, and then she was very quickly taken to the hospital, and Gunter was detained. So two days after... She's still in the hospital recovering, and what do the German police do? Well, of course, they have to go back in and re-traumatize this poor survivor. So, they're asking her to verify her shirt. They show her the knife that she was stabbed with, which, I'm sorry, that's just freaking bonkers to me. Why do you need- I get- yes, I get it. You gotta verify her- whatever. Why do you have to show her the knife? that she was stabbed with two days earlier. Why? I'll never understand it. I'll never understand re-traumatizing the victims. Another thing that blew my mind is that the tournament continued to go on. They kept playing. They didn't cancel the tournament. And, ironically enough, Steffi Graf played in the finals garbage. So, Gunter Parchi, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right, and personally, I don't care. I didn't even look it up because he's a garbage person, and I just don't care. So, he was pretty open about his reasons for stabbing Monica. He claims that he was a super fan of Steffi Graf, and he had no intentions of seriously harming Monica, but he figured that if he injured her just enough that she would no longer be able to play, and Steffi Graf would return to be the world number one. Now, this next part infuriates me so, so much, so just stay with me because I might get a little crazy here. So, Gunter only spent six months in pre-trial detention, and in his trial, he was found to be psychologically abnormal and was sentenced to two years, say it with me, probation and psychological treatment, which... I don't want this to be a knock on psychological treatment. I take mental health very seriously. But when you stab someone, you are now a danger to yourself and society. So, great, get him the help that he needs. But also, he should not be walking the streets, people. Oh my god, I I just, I can't believe that. 
So, during his trial, there was evidence that he had an extreme obsession with Steffi Graf. He said that his room, uh, the house which he shared with his elderly aunt, is plastered with pictures of Steffi Graf and collection of videos of her tournaments, which he plays repeatedly. Uh, he even wrote her anonymous letters and uh, once even sent her money to buy herself a necklace. Uh, he would call her a dream who... Whose, fi- whose smile is like sparkling diamonds and hair shines like silk and would say, I would walk through fire for her. So people are pretty upset by this decision. And even Parchi himself, who had only spent five months in prison between the time of his arrest and sentencing, said that he expected to spend 10 to 15 years in jail. So now, of course, a lot of people within the tennis community were upset by this and felt like this was not a great display of justice within the tennis community. And during this time, Monica also stated that she would not be returning to Germany to play and did not see that happening anytime in the future. So obviously, some things needed to be done within the tennis side of things to ensure that this would never happen again. So, there was a significant increase in the level of security at tournaments and the player's seats were positioned so that their backs were to the umpire's chair, not the spectators, so that they could not be harmed as easily. To which I say, could we just put the guy in jail and just maybe just make sure people aren't coming in to the tennis tournaments with a boning knife? Like, could we just, could we maybe start, could we maybe start at the gate can we, t- can we take care of the problem at the gate? Why do we have to wait until they get in and and it's the players who need to be on it? I just, I don't get it. I, I digress. So, you know, many uh, athletes argued that there was not much change at all to protect the players after this event occurred and it really upset some players within the tennis community. Okay, so one thing that's really interesting to know during this time is that Uh, There was some discussion as to whether or not Monica's ranking should be frozen during this time while she was recuperating at home. So remember, at this time, she was the world number one. So there was a meeting with 17 of the top 25 players in Rome where they were asked to vote on whether or not to freeze her ranking. And no one really knew how long her recovery was going to be in hindsight when they made this decision. It ended up being two years, but at the time... When nobody really knew this, 17 players voted against the freezing, um, other than one who was Gabby Sabatini. One thing that's really important to know during this time is that there was some discussion as to whether or not Monica's ranking should be frozen. So, remember at this time she was the world number one. So there was a meeting with 17 of the top 25 players in Rome and they were asked to vote on whether or not to freeze her ranking at the number one spot. So again, looking back at this, no one really knew how long her recovery time was going to be. It could have been weeks, it could have been months. It actually ended up being two years. So looking at it in hindsight, maybe it was a good decision, maybe not. But out of these 17 players, everyone except one person voted against the freezing, which was Gabby Sabatini, who voted to have her spot frozen. So, obviously, this was a pretty big blow to Monica, 
but it also goes to show you like how much sports sports are a business and how much money really goes into it so she kind of understood this decision but obviously it was still really upsetting to be the world number one and for it to be taken away in such a horrible way so also um another slap in the face was that monica had a sponsorship deal uh, and had very been very close to signing it and then after this happened it was taken away from her and given to steffi graf which i know steffi graf has like nothing really to do with you know gunter parchy doing this like she it's not like they were in cahoots or anything and i don't want this podcast to be a bash to steffi graf but given the circumstances, I think it probably would have been in the best interest for her to say no, um, especially because this was taken away from her because of a crazy fan who loves Steffi Graf and now she's taking her sponsorship. I just, I thought that was really weird, but it was obviously probably very much a business decision rather than a personal decision, which is hard to deal with, I'm sure, when that's happening at the time. So during that time, uh, Monica was playing in the tournament in Germany. Her dad was actually staying in a hotel uh, because he wasn't feeling very well. So it's around this time that he's actually diagnosed with prostate cancer. And, you know, Monica took this very hard. She even describes like saying it was like some sort of sick joke. You know, she couldn't play tennis, um, which is very therapeutic for her. And her dad began began doing radiation therapy you know all of this sort of happens within the first few weeks that her stabbing occurred so monica's not only dealing with you know getting stabbed by this crazy guy but she's also dealing with her father being diagnosed with cancer and her number one spot being taken away from her and of course time doesn't stop during all of this so She watches on TV as people are competing in the French Open, the Australian Open, seeing people in a position and saying, I should have been there, that should have been me. And, you know, that year, Steffi Graf returns to the world number one and Monica just feels so defeated because that's exactly what Gunter wanted. He wanted her to return to number one and he got it. And not to mention, guys, he got away with this. So he only did five months in prison in two years of probation and he was only charged with bodily injury because he claimed that he didn't intend to kill monica which i say i'm sorry to me that's attempted murder you stabbed her in the back anyone who doesn't see it like that is crazy and also attempted murder should be tried as murder so the fact that this man gets to be free after this poor woman goes through this and not much has changed within the security, it must just be debilitating to know that that person that did this to you is still out there and could do it to anyone else. So I'm just going to go on a little sidebar and kind of monologue for a little bit. So if you guys aren't really here for that, you can skip forward, but I just need to go off on a tangent. So I really want to talk about what happens as an athlete when you've been injured. So my job, my full-time job, I work very closely with athletes, specifically athletes who have been injured. So I'm an athletic trainer, not to be confused with personal trainer. I have a lot of training and rehab and getting athletes back to playing and doing the sport that they love. And, you know, being an athlete myself in college who was injured, when you get injured, you're not allowed to play the sport that you play or you can't play you know, for physical reasons, and it takes a piece of your identity away. 
you know, sports are, they're used as a stress relief. And when that's taken away from you in a situation that already adds stress and then your stress relief support is taken out from underneath you, it can be extremely debilitating in a mental sense. And a lot of athletes that I treat have mental setbacks due to their injuries and not being able to play their sport or kind of cope with what's happening with them. So, if you have friends, relatives that are injured um, in sports and that's kind of taken away from them, keep a close eye on them. I've had, you know, a lot of experience with kids really struggling with their mental health after an injury and let's get them the help that they need to get through it. Okay, sidebar over. So, at this time, Monica's beginning to experience those same feelings that she did back when she was at Bulletary's Academy, and again, she begins to turn to food. And this is just a body's natural response. A lot of people do this, and it's a very comforting coping mechanism for some people. Food can be very, very comforting. So, she would often find herself just loading up on sweets and comfort foods, what she would call junk foods. And she knew that it probably wasn't great for her body, but it was just kind of habit at that point that she couldn't break. And again, it really helps her with her stress, but also she began to gain weight. So at this point, Monica's really beginning to spiral downwards. She just feels like she can't control anything in her life anymore, whether it's her tennis career or her dad's health. She just feels mentally and physically defeated. And, you know, she's obviously dealing with some post-traumatic stress disorder from the stabbing and undergoes therapy for this as well. And she's really afraid to go out in public. She's not feeling great about the way that she looks. She celebrates her 21st birthday by herself. And, you know, that's really so sad to think that, you know, something horrible just happened to someone. And essentially, you know, her dad tells her, you got to get through this and you got to do what makes you happy. And, you know, if there's one thing I can say, it sounds like Monica had a really good support system with her family. You know, her brother was very close with her. Her dad cared a lot about her, always telling her to have fun, you know, when she's playing tennis and even telling her to have fun while she's playing at a very high level. You know, so I think it's really amazing that she had this kind of support system. And also in the early 90s, anxiety you know, it was kind of a taboo subject. Like, people didn't really talk about their mental health that much. And even PTSD was often only talked about when it came to, you know, military folks. So, seeing that she was getting the help that she needs, it, you know, it speaks volumes. And it was really at least awesome to see that she had that kind of support system and know that she was really getting the help that she needed. Okay, so now it's two years after the stabbing of Monica, and we're in the year 1995. She's 21 years old. So, uh, the original sentencing for Gunter, they had appealed, and they had just found out that that sentence was upheld, and he would go free, and at this point, there was nothing that could be done about it. So, after two years of essentially putting her life on hold, Monica decides that, you know, she's going to overcome this and she's not going to let Gunter have what he wanted and she is going to return to tennis. So, later on that year, Monica plays in the Canadian Open and wins her first WTA match in two and a half years. Now, the following month, Monica goes to the US Open and makes it to the finals but loses to Steffi Graf in the finals. 
So Monica goes on in January 1996 and wins her fourth Australian Open, beating Anki Huber. Oh god, I just totally butchered that name. But anyway, she won <laughs> the Australian Open. She competed in the Olympic Games in Atlanta, where she beat Sabatini in the third round match before losing in the quarterfinals. But at this time, she begins to experience the negative comments that are coming from fans and colleagues. And, you know, it's really upsetting to hear she worked so hard to get back and win another Grand Slam. And it's almost kind of ruined in a sense because she couldn't focus on that and allow herself to be happy. And that's not a knock on Monica. That A lot of us do that. You know, she felt so uncomfortable and embarrassed to even be there, having thousands of people looking at her. You know, she felt like she gained so much weight and was really having a hard time with her mental health and how she felt about herself and you know it's just it's heartbreaking to hear this especially because I'm sure there's so many athletes that this happens to and you know one that comes to mind that also happens to be a tennis player is Serena Williams after she came back after having a child and everyone was just kind of looking at her differently and you know it must be really hard you know we don't realize that these people that we watch on TV, they're still people. They're human. They think, they act, they do things like we do, and they're under this microscope because they're famous, world-renowned athletes, you know, and words really hurt, and they do make a difference. So, for her, it must have been really, really hard to cope with this. So, Monica's father's health continues to decline, and the two of them decide that she would need another coach since her father obviously wasn't able to coach her anymore. So Gavin Hopper came onto the scene and he was an Australian fitness buff. He had worked with other athletes. So, you know, Monica thought he's going to be great. He's going to get her into shape really quickly. And so Gavin was a really tough coach and would get on her about not eating sugar and really trying to work on her diet. So at, in 1998, her father passes away to pancreatic cancer and Monica begins to try to continue with tennis without her father who is a huge part of her tennis life but she knows that that's what her father would have wanted her to do he would have wanted her to be happy and to keep playing so her dad's passing came actually just weeks before the French Open so she decided that she was going to compete and not let herself get back into the slump that she was in after her attack years ago so Monica makes it all the way to the finals just weeks after losing her father, but unfortunately, she loses in three sets, and her opponent even said, you know, I wish you could have won, Monica, because she knew what was going on her on in her life and just knew how strong she was, so coming from her opposing tennis player, that's that's just really awesome. So after this, Monica continues her tennis career. She plays in the Sydney Olympics in 2000, although she never really retained her competitive edge. She continued to experience setbacks after the loss of her father, and in 2003, she actually suffered a foot injury. Uh, she played her last match in 2003, and then she kept trying to come back, but she officially retired in two. So, Monica went on to compete in season six of Dancing with the Stars, but was unfortunately eliminated in the first round. She said she had never even danced before rehearsals for the show, so the fact that she was able to do this was just kind of awesome, um, and in 2009, she wrote her book where I got a lot of information for this podcast, and that book was called Getting a Grip, 
on my my body, my mind, myself. That same year, she was also uh, inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame. And she also went on to write some young adult fiction about a tennis boarding academy, academy entitled The Academy, which I have not read those, but I actually heard they're pretty good. They would probably be pretty interesting to read, so go read them. And so, in a nutshell, that's the story of Monica Sellis, and I love the information that I got for this podcast, and her book was awesome, Getting a Grip. This book was extremely eye-opening, especially when it comes to sports injuries or some body dysmorphia. It was really, really great book. I really recommend anyone read it and go get it. You can find it online on Amazon Kindle, um, but she's, she's such a survivor, and just the way that she was able to overcome every single obstacle in her life is really phenomenal and she is just an amazing woman. Another thing I want to say too is, you know, again, I know I talked about it a little back in the episode, but please make sure that we're taking care of each other. These are crazy times that we're living through right now, trying to get through this pandemic and mental health is huge right now, um, especially with, you know, sports are constantly changing, games are being canceled, things are being moved, and again, these young kids, you know, sometimes that's all they have, so please just make sure, you know, you're checking up on each other, even if they're not athletes, check in on each other. You guys, I just want to thank you so much for listening to my first podcast. I'm really looking forward to making more of these and getting more in-depth I could honestly talk about Monica Sellis forever, but go ahead and read her book. She worked really hard on that, and she deserves for everyone to read her story and hear from herself. Please, guys, if you like this, go follow me. Go follow me on Instagram at Unnecessary Roughness Podcast, all one word. And please go to iTunes and leave me a good review or wherever you are listening to this. Thank you so much, guys. I'll see you next time.